We return this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We pick up in verse 13. Deuteronomy 6, 13, to the end of the chapter. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him, and swear by his name. You shall not go after other gods, but the gods of the people which are round about you. For the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord God be kindled against thee and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. Before we continue reading, just look at that. Who's around you? Who's among you? Who's around you? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Who's among you? Oh, boy. Verse 16, ye shall not tempt the Lord your God, as ye tempted him at Massa. Ye shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he hath commanded thee. And thou shalt do that which is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest go in and possess the good land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers. Cast out all thine enemies from before thee, as the Lord hath spoken. And when thy son asketh thee in the time to come, saying, What mean the testimonies, the statutes, the judgments which the Lord our God hath commanded you? And thou shalt say unto thy son, We were, Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord showed signs and wonders great and sore upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, and upon all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from thence, that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swear unto the fathers, our fathers. Please just note, in, out give. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this or at this day. It shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as he hath commanded Father, this morning we are glad to be together and glad for those that have been able to help us to set our hearts and minds towards worshiping you. And now as we turn our attention to the text, is our prayer that the Spirit of God would be our enabler, that the Holy Spirit would be our helper in both understanding and appropriation of the text to our actual lives. We have seen, and we intend to see together this morning, the correspondence between the Jewish people entering into the land of promise and your people today who have entered into the life of promise in Christ. 
Help us then, as we make those correspondences to the benefit of our souls, that you might bring to us that which you intend for steadiness, for sobriety, for good temperance, for a sense of justice among your people, although we see not justice in the world in which we live. Hence, we've already called the congregation's attention to what's around us. But Lord, we've sought to call attention to you who are among us as your people this morning. Help us then as we look at the text and application to our own souls. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Labor in holy care. That's the sermon. If you want to check out, here's your opportunity. Labor in holy care. Of course, if you did check out, you wouldn't be. Laboring in holy care. Our Lord Jesus invited the distressed to come to him and to take his yoke upon them. He never said that he would break every sinful and uh, opposing yoke that was around people in a flash of a moment. Uh, His invitation was, uh, take, quote, my yoke upon you. Taking the yoke of Christ means to submit to his authority and to join in the bearing of a new yoke in which he himself is the yoke mate. When teaching the section of God's word previously, we spoke of the double yoke and the depiction of the believer together with Christ in earthly life and in earthly labor. Therefore, every day in my life, every day in your life as a believer, is not, well, I will face another day, but rather we will face another day. Laboring in holy care involves laboring with your yokemate, Jesus Christ. Jesus promised that the response or the result of this mutual yoke-bearing would be personal rest of soul. The picturesque portrayal of living and laboring together with God, like other facets of New Testament discipleship, was beautifully forecast in the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament law given to the Israelis. The passage that we read this morning is blatantly Jewish, and it is to be primarily understood in its Jewish connection. But today, as we conclude our survey of Deuteronomy 6, we find specifications for Jewish life in the land of promise, And we also see, by way of correspondence and application, Christian life by way of living the life of promise in the Lord. 
Heretofore, we have seen that Jewish people living under God's law would, of necessity, apply the truth of Yahweh's exclusivity and Yahweh's faithfulness, verse 4, to the priority of loving God, verse 5. Every Jewish adult was to be a God-loving example. Number one, as we preached it first Sunday of this month. Furthermore, every single Jewish adult was to treasure God's word in their heart, verse 6, and teach the truth and love of God within their natural spheres of influence, namely home. And as we've quoted Hendricks for years, if it doesn't work at home, don't export it. Make it work at home. Make it work in the marriage. Make it work in the structure of the home. That is God's first and foremost place for truth and love. The teaching method is notably informal in that the truth and love of God was to be taught uh, along the lines of daily routines, verse 7, when you lie down, when you get up, when you eat your breakfast. Last week we saw that the binding and the posting of God's truth, 8 to 11, verses 8 to 11, we saw that the binding and the posting of truth and love at home was reflective of the creator who, as a matter of fact, serves his creation, the God who serves God who is overall and yet willingly serves the creation he made, doesn't have to. God is under no obligation this morning to provide air, breathable air, for any of us. I'm glad that he has. God is under no obligation to provide me a voice this morning, but to some degree he has in answer to my prayer and to a number of yours, and I appreciate those prayers. We know Christ, the Redeemer, is the ultimate example of God who serves or God who ministers. Christ is the ultimate ministry-minded overseer. Or, if you will, Christ is the ultimate service-minded steward. And so heretofore, we've talked about the fact that every believer is to be a God-loving example. Every believer is to be a teacher of God's truth and love. And every believer is to be a ministry-minded overseer, a service-minded steward. The Old Testament idea of everybody over something, while under God, is carried forward into the New Testament terms steward, and servant. As we ended last week with verse 13 and the emphasis upon worship governed by the truth and love of God, we said that worship without right doctrine, like worship without loving desire, is inappropriate and offensive to the Lord. If we sing things here today, pray things here today, preach things here today that are contrary to the word of God, we offend God. And if we preach what's right and sing what's right and read what's right, but do so with a cold heart, we offend God. That too, as we preached from verse 13 last week, is a part of ministry-minded oversight. 
Now, this morning, we pick back up with verse 13. As we think about this idea of labor in holy care. Labor in holy care. It's never work alone. It's always a work with. Or as you've heard me say it a number of times, it is always laboring together with God. We look at the fourth and final parallel between Old Testament Israel living in the land of promise and the New Testament saint living in the Lord. We're, of course, not called to live in the land of promise. We are called to live the life of promise in the Lord. The New Testament law foreshadows the life of the child of God on earth after the first advent and before the second advent. The parallel is between promised land and this promised life. Right here, right now. Disciples of Christ are those who love Christ supremely, teach the truth and love of God to others, and maintain their ministry-minded oversight during the days of their earthly sojourn. The actual disciples of Christ on earth and every generation after the ascension are those that labor with God in all matters of life and ministry. Thus, you have often heard me quote Paul, who said of himself and fellow workers that they were laborers together with God. Think of that. Going to work with God. Quite a partner. Quite a yokemate. Quite a a phenomenal thing to think about, labor in holy care. And why is it a labor in holy care? Simple. It's holy because he is. It's caring because he is. It's labor in holy care. It's what it is. Because that's who he is. It's quite incredible to me just to think of how difficult it is for believers in this generation to embrace the New Testament truth of yoking together with Christ by the indwelling Holy Spirit. I do believe that the Old Testament pattern of this principle among the Israelis can inform us and instruct us in our understanding and embrace of learning to labor in holy care. Or as you've heard me say it most often, to labor together with God. And so this morning I ask one question and answer it in the sevenfold manner of the text. The question is, what exactly did labor together with God mean for Old Testament Israel? What did exactly Old Testament Israel understand about labor in holy care? or laboring together with God? That's the question. The answer is sevenfold. So unless you brought your lunch, I'm going to have to be quick. Here we go. Laboring together with God meant reverence and worship for Yahweh exclusively. 13a, serve and fear. 
We often use the word reverence for the Bible word fear to indicate that we're talking about much more, talking about much more, talking about much more than simple dread. Standing in the pathway of a tornado will put great fear and dread in a person simply because of its killing force. I remember that first year that my family was in Iowa, and, uh, and on a number of occasions, I'm inclined to say 11, but I have no exact recollection, but it was, it was near a dozen, if not over a dozen of times in that first year, uh, I stood out the kitchen window and looked, and here comes the funnel cloud, and down to the basement we would go. That tornado will put a little fear in you when it's heading for your house. When we read that Israel was the fear of the Lord, we understand that we're talking more, talking much more about a simple dread of God as the ultimate killing force. Even though he is the ultimate killing force. Tornado a thousand times before standing naked before thrice holy God. If you were standing in the pathway of a tornado and saw no means of escape, you might cry out to God. I know I would. And if you cried out for God, to God for help and the tornado immediately lifted and went right up out of the clouds, out of sight, uh, you would then and there, with great gratitude, fear and worship the Lord as indicated in verse 13. Fearing the Lord means that you recognize that there is no power greater than his power. But that's not all. And here's where it gets really personal. Yes, Fearing God is recognizing that God is a greater power than any power on the earth. But fear is also recognizing that God has used that power to deliver us. Yes, he's strong. And he has used that strong for our benefit. Oh, that we would have hearts of love and loyalty flowing out in reverence and respect and honor and glory towards God, knowing of his omnipotent power and also knowing of the love wherewith we've been loved in Christ Jesus. That's the very kind of thing that happened on the Sea of Galilee that day. In the midst of a raging storm, the disciples had the dread, the peril before them, and the fear associated with that great storm. They cried out to the Lord. He spoke peace to the wind and the waves. And the Bible says of that moment, they feared exceedingly. Greater fear than the storm was the fear of one who had power to calm it and the heart to use that power 
for the benefit of his people. Let the name of God be praised for such a wonderful thing that you and I have experienced of the mercy of the Almighty in our own lives. Fearing the Lord doesn't mean ever less than simple dread. But in all cases, Old Testament and New Testament, fearing God always means more than simple dread. It means the recognition of his awfulness, awfulness, and the recognition of his loving intervention. It's a recognition of his affection towards his people. I like what Jerry Bridges says about it. He says, properly fearing God is more than just a feeling or an attitude. It is a feeling and an attitude that changes our lives, activities, and direction. God is glorious, and his people are to give him his glory in reverence and praise. This is labor in holy care. What have you done this morning to help this dinky-do congregation to labor in holy care? That's your job. You say, well, pastor, it's your job. Yes, it is. But that's your job, too. All God's people loving God. All God's people teaching truth and love. All God's people ministry-minded oversight. All God's people labor in holy care. Today, people live distracted lives in which even when they are in a place, they're seldom there. I'm not trying to rub anybody's nose in it. This is in dog training this morning. But I just simply ask you to answer before God. Have you done a single thing this morning? to get your own heart ready to participate in this hour and to labor in holy care. That's the thought. That's the responsibility of the Jewish people as they were getting ready to enter into the land of promise. Number two, this mutual labor with God meant relational faithfulness to Yahweh. 13b and 14. 13, thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him. And shalt swear by his name. You shall not go after other gods, of the gods of the people which are around you and about you, round about you. What's out there? Gods. What's here? God. What's out there? Gods. What's here? God. What's out there? God's. What's in here? God. Relational faithfulness to God was the standard for Jewish people in the land of promise. Just as Sherry, in 1975, began to identify herself 
in life and operation under the name Teal. She wasn't born that way. She wasn't born again that way. But just exactly in 1975, as she took on the name Teal, so Israel was to swear by the name Yahweh, to operate in life by the name Yahweh. He was their God. They were his people. They had a relationship, God and man. Violation of the relationship in marriage was called adultery under the law. Violation of relationship with God was called idolatry under the law. Faithfulness to the relationship with God was Israel's first and foremost calling. Only by faithfulness to that relationship would the Jewish people labor in holy care. Yahweh was the covenant name of God by which Israel was to pledge love and loyalty, labor in holy care. Number three, laboring together with God meant cooperation with God's appointed servants. 15 and 16, for the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. Ye shall not tempt the Lord your God as ye tempted him in Grand Rapids. No, I didn't say Grand Rapids. It says Massa. And, of course, if you have recently read in Exodus, uh, you would know what that reference is involving. But if you haven't recently, it may may have slipped your mind that in Exodus chapter 17, 1 to 7, it records an incident whereby a lack of water caused the people to chide with Moses in complaint against God. The place was named Massa, which means place of dispute or place of strife. The congregation of Israel was not to tempt or to test God as they did during those days of murmuring and complaint. I'm quite confident when <laughs> Moses was re-instructing the people of God before they entered the land of promise in the backdrop and scene and setting of Deuteronomy chapter 6, I'm quite sure that Moses must have had big eyes. And he pronounced this particular part of God's communication to the nation. He knew firsthand how tough it was to be God's servant when the congregation becomes critical of God's own leading in their own Hebrews 13, 17 says to us in the New Testament era, Obey them that have rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Labor in holy care means cooperation with leadership. It means moving together before the Lord as one people in the Lord. I want to tell you that 4, 5, and 6 go quick. 
because I can see some of you getting nervous. Glancing at your watch. Four, five, and six are really interrelated, and I thought about just taking them as one, but I thought, no, I'm going to break it out and get to the number seven. That's a good number, by the way. Four, labor with God meant regular or routine obedience to Yahweh's words. Verse 17 tells us that no command was left behind. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he hath commanded thee. Verse 18, and thou shalt do that which is right and good in the sight of the Lord. Labor with God meant regular and routine obedience to Yahweh's words. There was to be a life of diligent trust and obey. That introduces the further and connected thought five, uh, uh, that we have here in number five. Yahweh's yoke meant righteous living according to the promise within the land of promise. Verse 18, started to read it, and thou shalt do that which is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with thee and that thou mayest go in and possess the good land, which the Lord swear unto thy fathers. Doing right and good as God defines right and good was the means by which Israel would enjoy the elements of well-being as promised by Yahweh in the land. The people delivered by the action of God alone must engage in an ongoing sense of trust and obey in order to enjoy the things that God promised. The oath of Yahweh was perfect and good. Amen? The oath, oath of Yahweh was perfect and good. But in order for the people to enjoy that life and those promises, they had to engage in trust, and obey. Trust and obey was made to be by God contingent, along with the aspect of those undeniable forever oaths that God had promised to the Jewish people. And that then is naturally then leads us to number six. Yahweh's yoke meant righteous protection from spiritual competition and distractions. Verse 19 says, to cast out all thine enemies from before thee, as the Lord hath spoken. Part of God's promise to Israel relative to the land of promise was the power to dispel all enemies. But the experience of this power, as promise, required the congregation to trust and obey. Likewise, it is by walking in the Spirit that the New Testament believer finds the power to live victoriously over the world, the flesh, and the devil. What does it mean to labor in holy care? It means that you're engaged in the trusting of God and the obeying of God so that it brings to you as an individual and to God's family that worship together in a place, uh, the blessing of God as promised to the people of God based upon their age, stage, and dispensation. What does it mean to be a church member? 
Well, in the simplest of terms, it means to labor in holy care. It means to trust and obey, not once, but trust and obey today. That brings us then to number seven. The Old Testament yoke or responsibility shouldered by and with God meant righteous communication of Yahweh's purpose in salvation. Verse 20. And when thy son asketh thee in the time to come, saying, What mean the testimonies, the statutes, the judgments which the Lord our God hath commanded thee? Can't help but think of that statement of Peter when you are asked, whenever a man asks you for the hope that is within you, give him the answer. Give him the right answer. Give him the biblical answer. Give him the God-did-it answer. Have that answer on your lips, to be sure. Verse 20 to 25 rehearses the great Red Sea salvation of the Lord. And particularly, they were told that they were delivered out, that they might live in the land as promised. 23 again. He brought us out that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swore unto our fathers. I called your attention to it previously, but here are the operative words. Out, in, give. Out, in, give. Say it. Out, in, give. Out, in, give. Say it. Out, in, give. Out, in, give. If I said to you, how many of you would raise your hand and say that God has brought you out of your sins and the penalty of death that hung over your head as deserved? Many of you would raise your hands. Oh, I'm saved, I'm saved. Thank God I'm saved. Okay. But understand this. You weren't brought out to be out. You were brought out to be in. So let's think about that. You were brought to be out to be in. You were brought out to be in. You were brought out to be in. Not the land of promise, but the life in the Lord. So let me just ask you this question. Should you go to church or not? You were brought out to be in. You were brought out to be in the life that is in the Lord. The life in the Lord is a life among God's people. Answer your own questions from the Bible. You don't need me for this. Out, in. Did it? No, give. Oh, what God has promised. To give us. Who have been brought out. That we might go in. Oh what God has given us. Every good and perfect gift. Is from above. From the father of lights. With whom is no variableness or shadow of turning. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. God has brought us out 
And if I asked the flock this morning, how many would raise their hand and say, oh, God has brought us out? I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if everybody, if, if not nearly everybody, would raise their hand. I've been brought out. I've been brought out. Well, then understand this. You were brought out to be in. And that's not even the end of it. You were brought out to be in that might, God might bring and give to you the blessings that he has promised you. Oh, what a glorious thought it is that in Christ, all the heavenly blessings are ours right here, right now, in Christ today. Do you know anything about that blessedness? You won't without trust and obey. The vast majority of Christian people I know are dupey. The vast majority of Christian people I know are dull and and grumpy. How in the world can we have such an emotional flatness in light of the greatness and the goodness of our God? There's only one way. No righteous effort. Trusting and obeying. We were brought out that we could be in so that God could give to us that which he has afforded us by way of promise. Now, I've waited a long time to get to this point in the sermon, so I'm just going to take a breath a minute. And besides, my voice can use it. Jesus said, as I had it printed on your bulletin, The Father works, and I work. God the Son labored on earth in holy care. He who was here has ascended, but ever lives to make intercession for us according to the will of God. God the Son labors in holy care. The Father works, said Jesus, and I work. God the Son, God the Father, and God the Spirit work together as one in holy care. Therefore, we have triune evidence of the earthly accomplishments of Christ. While on earth, he died for our sins of his own accord. He died for our sins by the selection of the Father and by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Labor. In holy care, Father, Son, Spirit. Christ rose from the dead by lifting himself up from the dead. Christ lifted from the dead by the power of God the Father. Christ lifted from the dead by the power of God the Father through the spirit of holiness. Thus, God, Father, Son, Spirit, labored in holy care. This is the singular standard of Christian service. 
laboring in holy care. In the New Testament, the disciple is to take Christ's yoke upon them and serve together with him in order to operate with the rest of one's soul. We all know and sing that little gospel song, without him we could do nothing, without him we'd surely fail. We cannot help but attribute the weakness and the pale constitution of the average local church in the United States of America to this cause. Much activity without much anointing, much program without much power, much God talk without much God walk, much facade without much faith. We are called by God to holy care, labor in holy care. It's, it's so good to know from the Bible that God's more than willing to help. I mean, he really does it himself. He's planned it, provided for it, and has even told us that he has ordained workers from eternity past in order that we might pray the Lord of the harvest and that we might have the workers that are needed against the day of, of the Lord's harvest. Labor in holy care. What a simple way to think about life as a labor in holy care. Why holy? Because God is holy. Why care? Because God cares. So labor in holy care. I find it intriguing that both the Old Testament precedent and the New Testament fulfillment, or if you like, the Old Testament type and the New Testament antitype, that in both cases, the way that God does it is this. God says, come to me. Step number one, come. Step number two, trust me. God says, trust me. Step number three, obey me. Obey me. So the great words of Bible invitation from the Almighty this morning are, come, trust, and obey. Father, help us to be